Good morning, church. So good to be together. If you've got a Bible with you, we're going to study his word. So go ahead and open up to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 1 is where we're going to be. There are certain passages in the Bible that are so, so formative that we will have to return to them over and over. The more we do this, the longer we go, we're going to come back to these kinds of pillar text, and Psalm 1, I think, makes the short list. We, we talk about how we abide biblically is our primary distinctive as a church. In the We Are series, that's where we started. We abide biblically. Everything else that we are and do flows out of our, our being rooted in the truth of Scripture, the authority, the sufficiency, the clarity that's in God's Word. And so we bear fruit in a John chapter 15 kind of way We bear fruit when we abide in Christ and when his words abide in us. And that same kind of metaphor is being used here in Psalm 1, where there's this tree and it's always green and it's always yielding fruit in its season. And it's green and it's leafy because it's delighting in the word of God. And so this is a huge uh, thing for us to grasp, Psalm 1. So we're here again, Psalm chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Follow along, I'll read the whole thing. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night and look at what that meditation yields he's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither whatever he does he prospers now by way of contrast verse 4 the wicked are not like this instead they are like chaff that the wind blows away, therefore the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Sometimes I think as Christians, we don't really know what to do with the joy thing. Right? We're, we're, we can be even suspicious of words like happiness, It's like, I don't know what you mean by that. Let's just make sure we define it, make sure we empty out all the superficial content, right? And I think if we're not careful, we can give the impression to the world that we are strangely attracted to suffering (laughs) and misery, right? We're suspicious of joy. We're suspicious and we're quick to qualify that thing to death. We're suspicious of happiness. A classic example from the history of the church would be the Puritans. I love the Puritans, I quote the Puritans all the time. Some of the Puritans, not all, some of the Puritans left themselves open to certain stereotypes and these stereotypes have come down and been repeated over through time. So here's a sampling. 19th century historian Thomas Macaulay wrote in his History of England that the Puritans hated bear baiting not because it gave pain to the bear but because it gave pleasure to the spectators. Early 20th century journalist H.L. Mencken said that Puritanism was, quote, the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. (laughs) Contemporary radio personality in our day, Garrison Keillor, has continued the tradition by telling us the Puritans arrived here in 1648 in the hope of finding greater restrictions than were permissible under English law at that time. So 
almost as though we're, we're concerned or we're scared to be happy. We don't know what to do with the joy thing. But look, like many great books, the book of Psalms has an introduction. It's 150 chapters long, but it has its own introduction. And like the introduction of any great book, it's preparing the reader not to miss the point of the larger volume, of the larger book. And the introduction to the book of Psalms is Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Those are the introductory psalms that set up the entire theme of everything. And it's no accident that the first verse of Psalm 1 and the last verse of Psalm 2 introduce the prospect of happiness, the prospect of joy. Look at verse, chapter 1, verse 1. How happy is the one who, and then it gives you this layout of the picture of the person who's happy in God. And then chapter 2, verse 12, at the very end of this intro to the book of Psalms, all who take refuge in him are happy. It's a term that has to do with total blessedness. That's why sometimes it's translated, blessed is the man. There's this total, all is well, this deep running joy in God. It's, it's, a, it's the blessed life, not, not because circumstances are always favorable, but because this one knows God. And God is with him and he, God teaches us and instructs us in the way that we should go. This blessedness. What we're talking about here is this, this contentment, this true, deep contentment that comes from a life that is grounded in God's word, that is rooted in God's word, that's confident in God's character. And so Psalm 1 is God instructing us. And in a sense, Psalm 1 is answering the question, how do people who possess real faith actually live? Let me say that again. This is, the, this is the question that's being answered here in Psalm 1. How do people who possess real faith actually live? If we, let me just say this by way of qualifier. If we read Psalm 1 as a do this, do that, and God will accept you, God will save you, God will forgive you, we're misreading Psalm 1. That is not the nature of this psalm. It's a wisdom psalm. In other words, this is a song written to the people of the covenant. It's written to the faithful. It's written to believers. These aren't works done to earn acceptance before God. These are the fruits of faith. That's what's here, the fruit, much like the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament. It's not, hey, you, wanna, you want God to accept you? Be a peacemaker and be merciful and get persecuted. No, it's, these are the hallmarks, these are the family resemblances. When you're in the family, when you're in the kingdom, these are the things that begin to be flourishing and thriving in our lives. God instructs us, he clarifies, what does trusting him look like? And he gives us a few answers. Number one, walk in God's ways. Walk in God's ways. So the Christian life isn't you know, this mystical encounter, this sort of fog of grace that people end up transformed and nobody knows how it happened. That, that's not the Christian faith. That, that's why we did that series, Connect with God, to show that, showing from the Bible that, that God's word calls us into concrete practices whereby we grow in faith. Even daily disciplines like time in his word and time in prayer and fellowship with the church. And these are, as the Puritans would say, means of grace. It's how Christians become strong, exercises of faith that make us strong in God. In Psalm 1, this is in your notes, the Christian life is tangible and practical. 
It's tangible and practical. You show me a believer who, who practiced no spiritual disciplines, with no spiritual intentionality, and I'll show you a believer who is at best malnourished, but may not be a believer, may simply be professing the faith with their mouth, but not, no genuine heart change, no genuine affection, desire for God. Look, the reason that, that we sometimes use the word Christ follower interchangeably with the term Christian is because it's important, I think it's, it's good to constantly reinforce the idea that Christians are people who are following Jesus. Not who decided that 20 years ago and haven't done anything about it since, but Christians are people who are following Jesus, who lean into his word, who listen when he speaks. There's this E.F. Hutton effect when God's word speaks where we shut everything down. That's an old reference right, commercial years ago. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. When God's word speaks, Christians listen. We want to know what he's saying. We want to hear his instruction. You know, some passages in the Bible are sort of like that blunt family member who has no filter. They just, they just talk absolutely directly. They say what's on their mind, right? In my family, that's Aunt Jo. That's my dad's sister, Aunt Jo. Matter of fact, it's my, my dad's side of the family is that entire way. But Aunt Jo is a perfect illustration of that. Aunt Jo, she, uh, she runs, a, at least in years past, she ran a convenience store in Vider, Texas. And she would run armed robbers out of the store with a shotgun. And she wasn't pointing, she was shooting. So that's Aunt Jo, right? She's extremely direct. There is no nuance. She's just gonna tell you exactly what she's thinking. She's gonna tell you the way it is. Psalm 1 is Aunt Jo. <laughs> Psalm 1 speaks in a very direct voice. It tells you which way is up, which way is down, where your life is headed. It tells it like it is. And one of the main ideas that's here coming through is sin doesn't lead to happiness, just to put it plainly, sin doesn't lead to happiness. Yes, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We, we talk about that truth. Yes, there is mercy and there is grace for, for believers who struggle. Despite our many stumblings, he is more merciful to us, right? But, but friends, I think it's good for us to remember Scripture has an edge, too. Scripture has teeth, as well, look, scripture doesn't fling assurance in all directions. Just, hey, get your assurance, right? It, that's not what's happening. Scripture doesn't offer assurance to those who are living in open defiance of the word of God. Scripture speaks directly to that. Look, if, if our Christianity isn't changing us, if it's not breaking us and making things new, if it's not shaping our desires, if it's not taking you by the hand and walking you toward freedom. It's not a zap like instantly you're changed, but it takes you by the hand and it's walking you toward freedom. If that's not your Christianity, I've got bad news and good news. The bad news is somebody sold you a phony version of Christianity. The good news is you can get the real one. <laughs> you can respond, you can run to him in repentance and faith. And the spirit comes and he begins the process of change. He's making all things new where we run Saving faith is running to the real Jesus who changes us, albeit over time, patiently working in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But we run to the real Jesus, the real Savior, the one who came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross as a substitute for our sins 
to pay the debt that we owe to a holy God and then he rises again and he offers new life, genuine change. What do you do? You, you, you turn to him this morning. Turn to this Savior, the one Savior and hope of the world. Believe in him and give him the keys. Give him, give him the wheel. Insert your favorite metaphor of of passing control from your life to God, giving him control and saying, it's yours, it's not mine, it's yours. You run this thing. I'm gonna run it aground. I've been doing that for years. You take it. Saving faith looks like that. Psalm 1 is a great reminder that God's word isn't morally ambiguous. It's not morally fuzzy. There is moral clarity all over Psalm 1. You could hardly find a chapter in the Bible that's more out of tune with contemporary American culture. Because this is a a wisdom psalm, so it speaks in polarizing terms, black and white, up and down, righteous and unrighteous, right? This psalm divides the world in half. There are two kinds of people in Psalm one, living two kinds of lives headed toward two radically divergent destinies. That's the way Psalm 1 looks at the world. It just carves it in half. There's only two kinds of people, alternately described in verse 6 as the righteous and the wicked. We pick up on these absolute contrasts right from the start. In verse 1, the blessed man, the happy, the righteous one is described by what he avoids. Look at verse 1. How happy is the one who does not walk in the counsel, in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. And then in verse two and, and three, the righteous person is described positively, not by what he avoids, but by what he embraces and what he delights in. Look at verse two. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. And then it gives a picture of what that person's life is like. It draws a picture. Verse three, he's like, He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. And then there's this absolute contrast there in verse four. The original Hebrew just simply reads, not so the wicked. In other words, he doesn't have to say, here's what the wicked do in contrast to the righteous. He just says, it's polar opposites. Whatever you just saw the righteous doing, the wicked is doing the opposite. Not so the wicked. So we're reminded sin doesn't lead to happiness. And this next point, close friendships shape us. It's not just an Old Testament idea. It's a New Testament idea. The Apostle Paul says, bad company corrupts good morals. We shouldn't back down from quoting texts like that. That's not moralism to quote the Bible. (laughs) That bad company corrupts good morals. Your companions, your closest friends, shape your life. In verse one, it seems that there might be this kind of intentional, progressive descent. This growing comfort level with evil and with sin. So you see in verse, the verbs in verse one, he walks in the advice of, of the wicked. In other words, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not standing here for a long time. I'm just sort of walking by and lending an ear. On my way past, I'm listening on my way by. And maybe there's, again, maybe there's intentional progression because he moves from walking to what's the next phrase? He stands in the pathway with sinners. So now there's a with. There's this withness. There's this shared path. There's a shared outlook. We're standing in the same spot here. 
And then what happens next? He sits in the company with mockers. Now, now he's found a lawn chair. Now he's, now he's reclining in evil, right? Psalm 1 doesn't mince words. It's saying that approach leads to death. The person who's following that path is going to die. Let me ask you this question. Do you stand in the way of sinners? What path are you on? What are the features of your everyday life? If I can address and speak to and exhort students in the room, middle school students, high school students, college students in this room, especially, if I can have your ear, if you are strong in faith, if the Lord has you in a season where you are growing in faith, I want you to hear this. Use your God-given leadership in your school, on your campus, in this church, in student ministry, in college ministry. Outlead those on your campus who are playing religious games and dragging people down. Outlead them. Be an example, be a thermostat Christian, not a thermometer Christian. Set the moral temperature of those around you. Stand up, don't be ashamed. Look, my hardest years as a Christian were middle school and high school. We need to pray for our students. I'm not just talking about parents of students, that, that might be more obvious. I mean, every member of this church should take an interest in the well-being of the next generation spiritually. How are they faring? Are you praying for the next generation? God would give us a generation coming behind us who are faithful to Jesus Christ, who are convictional, with a Bible in their hand who are encouraging younger believers to grow in their faith, to pursue God, who are bold in their witness. Oh, that's what we wanna see. That's, that's a tree planted in the ground where there's nutrients and life-giving water coming up and out of their lives and you can see fruit on the branches. That's what we pray for, that's what we desire, right? Do you sit in the seat of scoffers, to quote from the ESV? Yes, believers struggle with sin. Yes, that's true, but are you starting to recline? Is it becoming more premeditated, intentional, right? Our, our drift away from God, friends, doesn't happen by some dark magic. It's not that mysterious. Sin isn't that mysterious, and godliness isn't that mysterious either. First Thessalonians chapter four, Paul says, this is God's will, your sanctification, Right, we can think like, hey, what is, what is the will of God? As if we want to take, you know, the, the lamp down into the cellars of ancient wisdom and, the, and the, you know, peer into the recesses of God's eternal purposes in, in eternity past and ask the question, God, what do you want? What are the deep things you want for my life? And, and Paul says, here, here it is. God's will is you, Holy. It's the will of God, your sanctification. His will is you fleeing sexual immorality, you walking in love, you killing the root of bitterness that's growing in your heart and soul, you forgiving one another as God has forgiven you in Christ. That, friends, is the pursuit of joy. That is the happy, blessed life. That's the way forward. It's the path that's been laid out that glorifies God, that leads to joy that lasts. By the way, these verses are not calling us to build a reservation away from the world where we can all just grow in holiness together, sealed off sort of in the Christian bubble. 
It's gonna buy up property. We all live on that property and we grow and become more godly together. That, that's just weird, one, but it's not, it's not what we're called to here. It'd be really hard to, to obey the Great Commission if we took this verse to mean detach from culture. Isolationism, isolationism is not the call. Frankly, that'd be too easy. That's not our call. Our call is to be in this world, but not of this world. It's to be light in dark places. It's to overcome darkness with light. But here's the thing, avoiding evil, hear this, avoiding evil by itself isn't a powerful enough exercise to sustain the pursuit of joy in God. And so the blessed man doesn't doesn't just commit to avoid evil, Next, he aims to grow by God's word. He aims to grow by God's word. Look at verse two. Instead, so by contrast, instead his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he, that's where he opens his lawn chair. He's, he is thinking deeply. He sits down with the word. He is, he is drinking it in. He's meditating on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams bears its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. This passage doesn't, it doesn't give us an avoidance-driven Christianity. It's not defense-only or defense-dominated Christianity. That's not compelling. A life of joy in God can't be sustained by just your no to the world. It has to be, it has to be sustained by an even louder yes to the word, an affirmation that this is the truth. We stand here, we grow here, we believe this implicitly. We thrive on his instruction. We thrive on his instruction. You know, one of the contrasts that we see here of many has to do with weight. There's a kind of weight metaphor here. So there's a two kinds of lives. There's a tree kind of life and there's a chaff kind of life, right? This tree is planted, it doesn't move. It's planted by streams of water so it's constantly feeding, it's constantly fed nutrients that are filling its roots and and that's where the real story is, is the stream is nearby. It's not that the, the tree has strength in itself, it has strength because of its proximity to water. And so it's located by this water and it's just drinking, just drinking Water, life-giving water, and all of, all of the external signs of life and vigor and leaf and all of that, it's owing to the fact that the tree is near these streams. So there's that kind of life, the tree kind of life, and then there, there's, there's this chaff kind of life. We might not all know what, what chaff is. So the imagery has to do with harvesting wheat. And the wheat would be covered by the sort of thin, dry, casing, the skin that was over it. And so that what they would do in the ancient world is they would pound, they would pound it and they would separate the wheat from the chaff and then you just see just all over the threshing floors just wheat and chaff and then you'd take this threshing sort of basket thing and you would throw it up into the air and the wheat grains would fall right back down and the chaff being weightless would be pulled away by the wind and then all you'd have on the ground is the wheat. The psalmist is using this as a metaphor for people Weighty believers weighed down in the wind of this world. What gives the righteous person substance, what holds him down in the wind is God's word. 
God's truth. You know, we live, friends, think about this. We live in a windy world. What's gonna hold you down when the winds are blowing around you? The weight that comes from being rooted in the word. How will we remain faithful? The weight that comes from being rooted in God's word parents and all the things. So we've got a parenting conference coming up. I hope that we're praying for, for fruit in that. Parents, in all the things that we give our kids, a good throwing arm, an ability to watch the ball, right? All the kinds of things that we do in the everyday nuts and bolts of life. For all the things that you give your children, make sure you give them the gift of weight. Weight in biblical truth. In gospel hope, there's nothing we need, this is in your notes, more than faith. And faith comes by hearing. Nothing we need more than faith, and faith comes by hearing. So believer, fill your mind with God's word. Memorize God's word. Internalize it. Hide it in your heart. Renew your mind in God's word. I love this imagery of this streams of water here in in Psalm 1. My my dream vacation, my dream vacation is log cabin in the woods, right? Um, way out in the woods, but a, but a tricked out log cabin, right? I'm not talking about, I don't wanna stay in a tent in the woods, I want temperature control, right? And, and so this log cabin in the woods and Paula and I are out on the back deck looking over into the woods and there we are and we've got great coffee and we have a book and the kids are inside being godly uh, (laughs) and quiet and the only thing that you can hear on that back deck is just just this mountain brook running and birds but mostly a mountain brook okay and I just imagine that and, and Psalm 1, in a way, informs me when I open up God's word, whether I hear it or not, there are streams running. And it's not sort of like that, that Disney speaker in the fake jungle that's, you know, birds that don't quite sound like real birds. It, it's real life. There's real streams that are flowing nearby. Every time you crack open God's word, there's life flowing. No time in God's word, friend, is wasted Life is nearby. Your roots are drinking deeply from the life that's found in God's word. In a sense, I hope that that, that, that describes gathered worship for us as well. Trees planted near water. All of our roots drinking deeply from the nutrients of the story of the gospel. Right? I hope that's just a longer way to say Sunday morning. Hope that's what happens here every single Sunday. I, I, my desire, as I pray for each one of our gatherings, my desire is you would leave this room each Sunday refreshed, feeling like I have, I have met with God, I've heard and we have sung the gospel, we've, we've confessed our hope without wavering and we float out of the room with joy in God, delight in him, more convinced that he's real, <laughs> more convinced that Jesus is knowable, that his spirit is eager to come and give us grace and fill us up again and again and again. He's here to nurse weary souls back to life 
every Sunday. He's here to, to pull the wayward from the edge of the cliff. That's what he's doing, I hope, every single Sunday. Strengthening heavy hands every single Sunday. What, what's God's instruction to believers here? How do, how do people of faith actually live? One, we walk in God's ways. Two, we grow by God's word. And three, we stand by God's grace. We stand by God's grace. There is, there is one way to life and joy and meaning and all the things that human beings are thirsty for. There's only one way to get that. This world is wired for a joy that is found only in Christ. It's wired in such a way that all true, lasting blessing comes to us through a mediator. It comes through Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection. That's why Paul says, for example, in Ephesians 1.3, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, believers, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Can't do an end run around Jesus to get to the blessings that come from God. It's all wrapped up in Christ. This is in your notes. Every blessing that has staying power now and into eternity comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Every blessing that has staying power comes through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, let me put it this way. Apart from Jesus, there are no streams flowing nearby. There is no life from God coming and filling up the soul of the believer. But, but if that's the stark reality on the negative side, if that's the stark reality when it comes to life outside of Jesus Christ, what happens when we believe in him? <laughs> Polar opposite. Total, total change. We get Christ. He is, he is all we need. He is all we have. He is our portion in this life. He sustains us with his promises. He supplies everything that we need. He holds us firm to the end. These are the promises of the gospel to you who have trusted in Jesus Christ. This passage, it, it has all sorts of moral clarity, much needed moral clarity, but this passage also offers us rich assurance. Psalm 1, by the time we come to the end of it, it brings, it brings us to the destinies of the righteous on the one hand and the wicked on the other. It brings you all the way to the judgment seat. And there we stand at the end of Psalm 1, at the judgment seat. And in contrast to the tree that stands strong, Psalm 1 shows us the wicked. They're like chaff, it says, that the wind blows away. There they go, just wind-driven chaff blown away into judgment, unable to stand when judgment comes. It's a sobering picture. Verse four, the wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The, the image of the righteous moves from early in this psalm, being a tree planted by water, to this other image of, of being a congregation standing in the presence of a holy God on judgment day, but able to stand in the presence of a holy God on judgment day. It's an Incredible picture. 
The language of verse five and six, it's intriguing, right? If you have an English standard version, it says that sinners can't stand, quote, in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. They can stand because he knows their way. And you might stop and think, wait, doesn't the Lord know all things? I mean, while we're at it, doesn't the Lord know the way of the wicked as well? Which tells you this knowing is more than just a mental awareness. There's something else going here. The the Christian Standard Bible brings that Hebrew term, I think, all the way over into its meanings. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. That's what it means. There's this personal knowing, this personal attentiveness to his own to make sure they're standing when judgment comes. I'll tell you a story many of you have probably already heard, but we do this long enough, you're gonna have to hear some stories more than once. Um, In in 2012, I went on my very first mountain hike, and I wasn't prepared for what I was gonna experience. We were in North Africa on a trip, and I thought, I actually thought I was gonna die several times either of cardiac arrest or falling um, off the mountain. And so there were many moments where I was just absolutely terrified. And there were guides, so local guides, who were practically running back and forth, helping us over some of the most dangerous spots in the hike. And, And so we're going down the mountain and back up the mountain, and the ground is wet, and at times it was really slippery. And sometimes the width of the next step was, was no more than a foot wide before it just dropped off thousands of feet. And I remember that one section, the scariest step I took on that mountain. I'm coming back, the guides are way out ahead. I feel like I'm the only person here. I'm looking behind me, there's nobody there, there's nobody in front of me. And, uh, and th- there was a piece of earth that wasn't there. And I had to, it's a very, very small, I mean, I only had to step about this far to get to the other side, but this was gone. There was nothing here except falling. And I thought on any other day, if this isn't a mountain, I just step over, it's no big deal. But it was also wet, and so I could see that the mud that was there had a slide in it. It didn't have somebody's footprint or sandal print, it had a slide. So the last person who jumped across kind of did a little slide thing. Maybe they were fine with that, I wasn't. And so, <laughs> so I'm there just staring at that mud and looking down at thousands of feet beneath me, terrified. And then in that moment, I see, as I'm looking down, I see a stick appear in view right here in front of me, about two inches thick, a big stick. And I looked up and it was a local and he was saying, come. (laughs) And he had his hand over and he had the stick over. So I had double grip. (laughs) And so when I look back on that hike where I feel like I was gonna lose my life on several occasions, the most important and dangerous step was the one that was most carefully watched over. That critical step over that ledge was more carefully managed than any other step in the whole journey. Christian friend, that's your faithful God. He will be there. He is faithful to watch over all our steps as we travel homeward. The, the only verb, I, I love this, the only verb of which God is the subject in this entire chapter, and thank heavens it's here, 
It's as the believer makes the most critical step into eternity. And there's God. And he knows the way. He guards that step. He extends his hand to bring us safely over. And the branch that he extends in order to rescue us is Jesus. Jesus is held out before us as our salvation. He's held out before us by a gracious God who says, come, take hold of him, come over. And he sees us safely over. Take hold of Jesus. Look, that's gonna be my favorite thing to say every Sunday. In a thousand different ways, I wanna say to you every Sunday, take hold of Jesus. Trust him. He's strong enough for the both of you. Treasure Christ, cling to Christ. This this two-chapter introduction at the beginning of the 150 Psalms is all about entering into the joy of knowing the living God. And that introduction begins by saying, happy are those who delight in his instruction. And then it ends in chapter two, verse 12. Happy are all who take refuge in him. He, friends, he is able to see us over. He is able to to manage that most critical step. We have no other refuge, but here's the good news. We don't need any other refuge. He's enough, only Jesus, He, he is enough.